Well, welcome uh, to our United States Study Center panel on the Sino-India uh, border dispute. Uh, and importantly, whether this dispute has pushed India decisively towards the United States and its allies. Uh, my name is John Lee. I'm an adjunct professor and non-resident senior fellow at the US Study Center. I'm also a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, DC. Uh, to set the scene for today, uh, there was once an Indian prime minister who then as finance minister uh, once quoted the great 19th century French novelist and poet, Victor Hugo, in the Indian parliament when delivering his first budget, declaring, no power on earth can stop an idea whose time has come. Now, that was 1991, almost 30 years ago. Uh, and then Finance Minister Manohan Singh was talking about economic reforms that would propel India into a new era of prosperity uh, and with it relevance and standing in the world. Now, I raise it because it was in this decade, it seems to me, that perceptions of India uh, began to change uh, from being a large but poor country into a potential regional and eventually global uh, power. Now, over the last three decades, India has consistently been referred to by many as the swing states, the swing strategic state for United States and allies in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I think it's fair to say that India has teased, it has seduced and sometimes disappointed uh, the United States and allies in this context. There have been many attempts to woo India. Uh, there was, for example, the first short-lived Quad uh, in 2007. Uh, the US-India nuclear deal in 2008 effectively legitimized India as a nuclear power. Uh, and signal a new era in uh, US-India relations. Australia signed its own nuclear agreement, a civil nuclear agreement with uh, India in 2014. And we made our first shipments of uranium to India in 2017. But as is often the case in uh, international affairs, we sometimes have hopes that do not necessarily uh, correspond with what we want with what New Delhi wants to do and the timing of when New Delhi wants to do uh, a particular uh, policy. Now, this brings us to the present time. Uh, this is the second webinar we've had on India this month because there is a very strong sense that something this time is different. Under Mahendra Modi, India seems to have changed its strategic mindset significantly, possibly decisively, uh, in particular from how it thinks about China uh, to its relationship with the United States and its attitude to the Quad. Uh, the recent triggering, triggering event was the clash between Indian and Chinese troops last month in eastern uh, Ladakh, which involved the first loss of life uh, since 1975. But the question is, are we misreading India again, or is now the time to really accelerate things forward with India and the Quad. Now, the great thing about, great thing about webinars is you can choose anyone you want from around the world to, to fill the spots uh, in the way that you want, and, and we've done that. We have a fantastic panel to talk about these issues. Uh, first is Dr. Levine Lee, uh, who's a senior lecturer at the Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations at Macquarie University, Sydney. Uh, she also sits on the Council of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute 
to which she was appointed by Defence Minister Reynolds uh, earlier this month. Uh, we have Professor Raja Mohan, who is the director uh, of the Institute of South Asian Studies in Singapore. Uh, Raja Mohan is easily one of India's most influential commentators and thinkers on foreign policy. Uh, he's an author of numerous books on India and he writes a regular column for the Indian Express. Now, Greg Sheridan, which is known to uh, many of us uh, who've signed on today, is the Australian newspaper's foreign editor. Uh, and he's clearly one of the nation's most uh, influential national security commentators. Now, Greg, I've never actually told you this before, but when I uh, was the senior advisor to Julie Bishop from 2016 to 2018, I had carriage of what was known within the government as the Greg Sheridan Project. What the Greg Sheridan Project involved was to read your columns first thing in the morning, uh, work out a set whole of government set of talking points, uh, either trying to take advantage of the praise you offered the government or to neutralise the attacks that you were making against the government each morning. So that was one of my sacred duties for two years. Uh, and we have Abhijit Singh, who is a senior fellow and head of the Maritime Policy uh, Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation in India, which many would consider the leading think tank in the country. Abhijit is not only one of the country's leading naval strategists uh, who was involved in the drafting of the uh, landmark 2007 uh, maritime strategy document for the country, but Abhijit has also had frontline experience uh, on uh, Indian naval ships. Now, this is a group of people who will make my role extremely easy for the next hour. Uh, I'll be working through as many questions being sent through, so please continue to send these to me if you haven't done so uh, already. Greg, let me uh, begin the conversation with you. Uh, in my introduction, I, I spoke about the, the view of India as a swing state um, and, and that perhaps there is a feeling that this time is different, uh, that India is ready to take up that role. Now, have I, in your view, oversold uh, the excitement that is building in the United States and in Japan and in Australia about the role that India might play? No, John, well, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, gosh, it'd be wonderful if I could provide you with a new project, uh, Project uh, Sheridan sometime in the future. Thanks to the United States Studies Centre and to our distinguished Indian co-panellists, especially my old friend, Raja. We've been friends since the Pleistocene age, I think, and I can't remember when we first met. Look, uh, I, um, I think why strategic heads in Australia have always wanted to develop a, a, a close strategic and economic relationship with India. To some extent, they've failed. And I would say the fault is about 70% Australia's, 30% India's. We find it very hard to get India's attention, but we make a lot of mistakes. We miss opportunities. We do stupid things. We banned the export of uranium to India for far too many years. We overreacted to the nuclear test uh, uh, much more than any other nation did. We, um, I urged John Howard in 2007 to invite India as his guest to participate in the APEC summit. I think he was quite interested in the idea that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade had a nervous breakdown because it would have breached process. But our failure, in a sense, is emblematic of the broader Western failure to fully realise strategic engagement with India. 
India is an immensely important country and until the coronavirus hit was one of, if not the fastest growing big economies in the world. Uh, India has soft power all over the world, which I don't think it even fully realises the extent of, except for maybe Pakistan and China. No nation in the world wants anything other than Indian success. That's not true of China. India is the natural balance of China, not by joining some alliance, but just by expressing its own strategic personality. Um, but Australians feel, and I think a lot of Western policymakers feel, that they've, they've tried and India is difficult. But every important relationship is difficult. Just try getting married. And uh, I don't think they've tried hard enough. But the short answer is no. The, the sense of possibility with India amongst Western strategic uh, policymakers is very great. Greg, just to further set the scene, um, from the United States perspective, you've dealt with uh, senior people in American administrations, I, I believe, since the Bill Clinton administration. Um, when did this strategic in interest in India begin? And has it always been linked to the balancing, countering China uh, strategic dynamic? Yeah, I think that's right, John. So I, I've been um, involved with the US since a long time before that, actually. And um, I'd say before the end of the Cold War, the US had a blinkered and, and uh, narrow and often inaccurate view of India. And it was seen entirely through its relationship with the Soviet Union. At the same time, the US had a close relationship with Pakistan. And before Manmohan Singh brought economic reform to India, the economic growth rate wasn't that high, so it didn't attract uh, the economic engine. I mean, strategic relationships, not always, but normally involve two legs, the economic and the, and the military, if you like, or three legs, the diplomatic as well. I certainly think in Clinton's era, uh, India became a uh, much bigger deal for the United States. And of course, it was a doctrine of the Bush, George W. Bush administration to go and, uh, and court India partly in the context of China, but partly also because India was a fantastic argument that democracy was not an eccentricity of Western culture, but rather a universal human aspiration. And it was a big economic opportunity. So I think it began in Clinton, but it was very fully expressed in under Bush with Ambassador Blackwell, with Rich Armitage, with Bush himself insisting on pushing through uh, the nuclear deal. Hey, Lavina, let me um, go to you, uh, the Australian context. Uh, what do we want from India? Well, I think um, for, for some time now, um, at least definitively since the uh, release of the Foreign Policy White Paper in 2016, Australia's assessed that the geostrategic context has really changed. Now, Australia hasn't gone as far as the United States in labelling China as a revisionist competitor, but we acknowledge that there's a clear geostrategic competition going on and that the US-led order, um, international order is under threat because of a raft of aggressive and assertive Chinese policies that we all know about. Now, India joined the Quad again in 2017 but it has been um, the one, one out of the whole group who has been the most reticent to give the Quad teeth um, to deepen the military cooperation between the four countries. And I think that's largely because of a fear of provoking 
China to retaliate in some way, um, and also because of doubts about the commitment of, of Australia in particular to the project. So what I think Australia wants is for India to take concrete steps, whether that's bilaterally or in concert with other Quad countries, uh, to counter Chinese actions and policies that are steadily undermining the liberal order. And India, we see India as being extremely geostrategically important. As you said earlier, for a long time, people describe India as, as the swing state in Asia. Um, it's obviously the, the centre of the sea lines of communication um, in the Indo-Pacific, and India has those natural advantages in projecting power into the Indian Ocean. Um, it has growing naval capabilities. It uh, has strategic assets like the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which are conditioned perfectly near the Malacca Straits. Um, and all of those things could help Australia also to project power in the Indian Ocean. So I think what Australia ultimately, ultimately wants is India to swing decisively towards the United States and allies like Australia um, to actively use capabilities and resources, whether that's a military angle, economic or diplomatic, uh, in servicing this aim of countering and constraining Chinese assertiveness and aggression. All right, Abhijit, let me bring you in and then I'll go to you, Raja. Um, I, uh, could you explain to us, and is there something which Australians have never really understood and a lot of Americans don't either, why has India uh, always been hesitant to throw its lot in with the United States and its allies? Uh, what is the brief historical and contemporary reason why that hesitancy is there? Well, you know, there's uh, the reason why India has been uh, rather diffident or hesitant to join uh, the US and its allies in what has now been termed as the Quad is that uh, India has never been too sure of its ability to absorb the costs of a quasi-alliance with the US. Uh, there has been this understanding that there is, for, for a long time in New Delhi, that we have what we call strategic autonomy, that we somehow don't want to constrain our choices, that we want to be able to manage the relationship with China um, in, in, without resorting to, to, to a situation of conflict. Uh, and, and that means that uh, we cannot commit ourselves fully to at least a military alliance with, with the US. Uh, the second thing that's important to this is, is just the framing of the, the quad or, the, or this quasi-alliance that people form with, that we are expected to form with the US. And uh, you know, when the quad happened uh, uh, in 2007, the, the rationale for the quad was that it was this sort of a, a, a grouping that would in some ways check China's propensity to cause trouble in, uh, in, in maritime Asia. But this time around, but, but it was subtle, the signaling was subtle. This time around, it's been posited as, uh, as really a containment strategy. Uh, there's this whole rhetoric about, uh, about an alliance of democracies, about a coalition of the willing, to go and contain Chinese power, China's malign influence, uh, China's, China's muscle flexing, all of that rhetoric uh, doesn't quite sit very well with many in India's strategic policy establishment. I would say after the Galwan clash, there is a greater 
uh, desire in India to associate itself with the U.S. and its allies and actually accept the, the Quad as a, as a balancing instrument. But even there, I would say that India, I don't think is, is ready for a comprehensive rivalry with China, something that is going to uh, constrain uh, India's options and that is going to involve India in a situation that might have multi-dimensional consequences. And therefore, there is this uh, hesitancy in joining, the, uh, in, in, in joining a quasi-alliance with, with the US. Lastly, and I think most importantly, there's the whole logic of, of, of having and uh, of, of joining the Quad, which is that uh, the US expects this to be a, a, a grouping that was uh, going to, uh, to get a rules-based order in, in Maritime Asia. Okay, I think Abhijit's dropped off, but he did warn us that um, there are occasional power shortages where he is. But actually, it's quite, it's a good segue to you, Raja Mohan. Um, I know, you know, we've discussed the quad issues for quite a while. You've been quite forward-leaning for quite a long time on the quad, but more, more, more generally India's uh, role in the Indo-Pacific and, and, and the broader world. Um, Abhijit wrote a very interesting op-ed on a 20th of July, I think, in the Hindu, uh, where he expressed uh, some wariness of both uh, inviting Australia to the Malabar exercises and progressing the Quad too qu quickly, more generally. Now, those concerns Abhijit has raised, they're there. Um, given what's occurred in the last three or four months, particularly with uh, China's behaviour around the world, uh, have you become even more forward-leaning on the Quad? Um, or, or what is your general view of uh, how quickly things ought to accelerate when it comes to India's role in the world? I mean, on the nature of this government in Delhi today, I mean, it's not easily swayed by op-ed pieces by people like us. Uh, I think uh, it has quite decisively made up its mind uh, over the last many years, uh, both uh, because China's pressure has mounted on India, and uh, the uh, the U.S. has become more open for that partnership. So I would say India is no longer a swing state, but it has been swinging quite, whether it's decisive or not, is up to you to judge, swinging continuously away from China uh, towards the U.S. and the West. I'll just give you three uh, examples. I mean, uh, the in 20, 2017, uh, India was the first country to really oppose the Belt and Road Initiative in a publicly, significantly, and refused to attend uh, the Belt and Road Forum uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Beijing in 2017. The trigger for that, I believe, was the earlier clash uh, in Bhutan, uh, in Doklam Plateau, where Indian and the Chinese armies uh, were face-to-face -face for almost 73 days. Second uh, is the Indian withdrawal from RCEP. I know that Australia, Japan, the other Quad members like it, but they were with the Americans, actually, uh, that a China-centered economic integration of Asia uh, is not acceptable to India. Uh, and that the, the India's economic problems are with China have sharpened and that India sees, much like the debate in the U.S., uh, in the, the hollowing out of India's uh, manufacturing sector, many Indian, uh, the government believes, is largely due to China. Therefore, India is not going to be part of the RCEP. And... and on the defense side, I mean, um, if you see from 2015 or 2014, this government came to power, it's been a steady advance of defense cooperation with the United States. 
whether it's the two plus two signing of the foundational agreements or whether it is the uh, the quad actually is probably the least important because it's really so far a diplomatic signaling device. But if you look at bilaterally, what India has been doing with the United States and the US, uh, you know, it's now it's not a secret. The US has been giving real time intelligence for Indian armed forces, which are facing China, and the amount of collaboration uh, that is there between US and India is quite significant. Uh, and if you avoid looking at Quad and look at what India is doing bilaterally, I think the recent summit with Australia is in advance. What we do with Japan is significant. So if you turn your eye away from the Quad and see what how much India has moved uh, in relation to US, Japan, and Australia, I think it's very, very significant. Of course, given India's own, India is not easily rushed, but the Chinese are sorting the problem out for us. That like all countries, we want to have a, a decent engagement with China, but China is making it harder. And, and I think what it has done this summer uh, and what their ambassador said uh, recently that look, uh, it is a problem that we could fudge did not exist. But the Chinese are saying the problem is real, uh, just as what they do in South China Sea, just as what they do in East China Sea. They say they've got claims and they're going to redeem those claims. So there is no longer this kind of are we with China, not with China, the kind of problem Abhijit talked about. The problem, thanks to Chinese, has disappeared. And I think India will move closer to the, to the US. That does not mean we'll ever be a, a treaty ally like Australia is or a Japan is. So we'll negotiate our own terms with the US. How much of it bilateral, how much of it trilateral, how much of it plurilateral, how we work that out. But I think the process has begun decisively. So, so this old arguments about strategic autonomy, uh, India somehow is uniquely configured not to do alliances. But again, I doubt if it is true. And so we went with the Soviet Union when US and China normalized relationship. So, so I don't think it's a problem of principle, it's a problem of terms and the circumstance. Chinese are changing the circumstance. Americans are, are opening, are, are now for better terms. So I think the stage is set for doing more things with the US. Uh, before I move on, I just I just want to continue continue that theme. Uh, India, as you mentioned, India is doing a lot bilaterally uh, with the US, in particular, a little bit a little bit more Japan, or ever increasing amount with Japan. And this is a question of high importance, obviously, for us. And I'll initially uh, throw it to you, Raja Mohan, but Abhijat Singh and Greg and Navina, feel free to come in. What does Australia bring to the table as far as India is concerned? I mean, this has always been a question for us. Why, you know, if there is, why would India bother uh, progressing the Quad, um, given that it really has excellent strategic relationships with the Japanese and the United States? What is it? Does Australia bring anything to the table from the Indian point of view? Look, I think Australia is an important uh, middle power in the region. It has significant capabilities and it has the kind of political will that doesn't exist anymore in South China's in ASEAN. So I think there is, uh, if we look around and say, look, we have a problem with Chinese power. Uh, we can pretend we are doing multilateral stuff through, you know, ASEAN, ASEAN centrality, uh, you know, East Asia summit. That's, that's for the diplomats. But if you're a planner saying, look, I've got a power problem with China. I need a coalition. And that if you look around the region, uh, quite clearly, I mean, Australia, Japan are the natural partners. And I might take you back to the earlier incarnation of Quad, uh, back in the mid-60s, 
in fact, Australia hosted, ANU hosted a conference of academics from the four countries uh, saying, look, this was before US and China normalized the relationship. How does Asia get together to deal with the Chinese expansionism? We're talking about 65, 67, 68. And of course, that process collapsed because US and China normalized the relationship. But today, I think uh, China is going to drive uh, most other countries to, to find ways of working together. And you're seeing it in multiple ways. But I think in terms of independence, capability, and political will, uh, we think Australia uh, is a natural candidate for India's partnership. The, the rest is detail, how far we can push our bureaucracies to come together, how many things we can do bilaterally, how much can we do diplomatically in terms of coordination. That's a matter of detail that will be worked out. But I think the logic uh, of Chinese power uh, is driving us together. Can I? Uh, uh, Abhijit, uh, was it Greg or Abhijit? Yeah, that was, that was me. Yeah. Uh, Abhijit, yes. Uh, I would completely agree with what uh, Dr. Mohan has just said, but I would also like to add that one of the reasons why Australia is a really important partner is because India has, has really has a problem with China and the Indian Ocean. And whilst India has a good relationship with the US and Japan, Japan and the US are quite taken with their problems in the Pacific, in the Western Pacific, the East China Sea, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the, Japan, the Sea of Japan. But, it, it, but what's, Australia is actually willing to partner with India in the Indian Ocean. It has a two ocean strategy, we know it gives some stress to the issues of the Pacific, but it's also willing to commit to the issues in the Indian Ocean region. And therefore I think India has been considering a closer a strategic relationship, a military relationship with uh, Australia. We do know of the fact that there have been a number of exercises between the Indian Navy and the Australian Navy. Uh, and, and I think going forward, even if we don't commit to a military quad, even if we don't invite, say, Malabar, uh, say Australian, uh, Australia to participate in the Malabar exercises, we will see this process going forward because India actually needs to develop the capability. It needs to have the ability to constrain China's growing footprint in the, in the Indian Ocean and the Australians, at least in my view, are well placed uh, uh, to partner us in that endeavor. And so I think the India-Australia partnership going forward is going to be very important. I think, um, um, I'd, sorry, I'd also just quickly add, I think, um, you know, in the past when I've talked to uh, Indians in India, like you, Abhijit and, and Raja, I know you're in Singapore right now, um, but there was also a lot of scepticism placed, um, expressed about Australia and its commitment uh, to India or to things like the Quad deep down because of our relationship with China um, and our economic relationship. So I think going back to what you said before, Raja, about uh, political will, I think in the last two or three years, Australia has really demonstrated really quite obviously that we have this political will. Um, to stand up for um, important interests vis-a-vis -vis China, even though we simultaneously have an economic relationship. So we've been a real world leader in many respects in terms of um, you know, foreign interference legislation, um, the WHO call for an investigation, all of that in spite of the fact that we're now under uh, economic coercion by China and that we're still persisting. I think sends a really clear signal about what our, the nature of our resolve is vis-a-vis -vis China. Lavina, I'm not, uh, sorry, do you want me to come in now? Yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll go to you as a response, yeah. Raja, then I'll go to Greg. Okay, I mean, I, I don't worry too much about reliability. Look, the sheer size of China is everyone has to take some precaution. 
So I'm not complaining about uh, you know Australia's reliability or otherwise. After all, is India reliable? I mean, we sit in brick and bricks. Uh, does that stop us from being a partner to you? So, so I think it's not this this level of symbolism. I, I think uh, that China's size is going to compel everyone to look over their shoulder, be careful what they do. But I think the way China is behaving now, uh, I think it's going to cut those options of, of the imperative for hedging. Uh, and I think even if Australia is not reliable, I would say, look, what, I, what can I do with Australia? So I'll go with Australia as long as Australia is going with me. So rather than saying, oh, prove me your reliability first, then I'm going to go with you. These days, mm -hmm. even treaty allies are not reliable. So, so I don't think we should really harp on reliability. Circumstances are compelling us to get together. The question is, what do we do uh, without worrying about reliability, trust, and that kind of stuff? Great. Yes, so without wanting to cast Australia as a, as a supplicant or anything, I, I would say Australia is very keen to progress the deepest relationship it can with India. Fate keeps intervening to prevent our prime ministers from spending any time in India. Kevin Rudd complains that when he was going to go to India, Manmohan Singh had a heart attack to avoid, uh, to avoid uh, having to receive him, you know, which seemed, which seemed to Rudd rather an extreme response, really. And then, um, and then Morrison wanted to go there and spend a long time there. And, um, of course, this uh, flaming coronavirus stopped us. And in Malcolm Turnbull, we had our most cosmopolitan prime minister ever, and he'd never been to India before he went there as prime minister. But that's by the by. The real question I want to ask Raja and Abhijit, um, but they don't have to answer it right now, is what is going to happen with the Malabar exercises? I, I mean, they, they have become almost uh, totemic, really, in the sense that... Um, uh, I mean, I think Australia has made many, many mistakes in its relationship with India, but um, what would be the bar in inviting Australia to to participate in them and, and what is actually going to happen? Uh, Raja or Abhijit? Uh, okay. Yeah. I think maybe, you know, Abhijit has recently written about it. Uh, look, I think there's a lot of media reporting, but uh, I believe this year the Malabar exercises are not taking place. The sense I have is... Uh, it is eventually, I mean, I think it's going to happen. And the Australians themselves, the government, are not obsessively focused on the Malabar question. That, in fact, the agenda that we unveiled in the bilateral meeting, that if we do more on the defense, if we do more bilaterally, uh, I think we'll be creating the, the framework. My personal opinion is, uh, I think uh, it is the next exercise, my sense is Australia will be in it in some form or the other. Thanks, Roger. Okay, Let, let's move specifically to the Ladakh incident. Um, and I'll, oh, Abhijit, did you want to have a have a response? No, I just wanted to make a little a little comment. I I would agree that there's a developing consensus around inviting uh, Australia. It might not happen this time, perhaps next time, but Australia will be a part of the Malabar exercises in the future. The only thing that needs to be pointed out that any balancing coalition that happens in the maritime Uh, that coalition to come about, the, the reason why it has happened should be clear. At this moment, the Chinese have adopted a very smart strategy in the Indian Ocean region. They're not being aggressive. They've not uh, entangled with the Indian Navy. They've not challenged our ships. They're not uh, operating close to our waters. And that means that if we do invite 
uh, Australia to join the Malabar exercises, we will be crossing China's red lines without China actually having been aggressive with India and the Indian Ocean. And I just think that. I think I, I'm afraid, you know, I think the uh, Chinese red lines are uh, always there, uh, you know. The question is, are we so eager to defer Malabar to the China? Out to China. I don't see the Chinese being threatening in the Indian Ocean because they're not capable of doing it. But the long-term strategy is to limit India's space in the Indian Ocean. So I don't, in fact, most of the navalists, Abhijit is an exception, argue that we need to do more on the naval side to compensate uh, for the northern uh, problem that we have. But I don't think it is the fear of China today that stops us uh, from doing more. Uh, I would think the, the Chinese have a long way from being force, but they're getting bases. The first military base is in Djibouti. Uh, they're doing a lot more things. So I think all these concern the Indian Navy, concern the Indian uh, security establishment. So, so I don't think there is any uh, self-imposed red lines because Chinese, because Chinese don't observe any red lines of India because what they do with Pakistan, what they're doing in the region is so offensive for India today that I don't see that fear. I think what Abhijit is, that used to be the policy, I think, the Congress mindset. But I suspect the present administration has broken out of uh, this level of fear of self-induced fears about what China might do to us. They're already doing things bad enough. All right, Raja, you've actually allowed us to move very nicely into the question I was going to ask. And, and I'll initially direct it to Abhijit, but I said, Greg and Levine, feel free to come in. The Ladakh incident, uh, we know, you know it, it, it's, it's been a, well, it's been a bloody incident. It's the first loss of life since 1975. And Abhijit, prior, at, earlier in this, in this panel, you explained to us India's dilemma about wanting to get too close to the United States and, and, and its allies because of the, compli uh, the complicating China factor. Now, given what's happened with the Ladakh, um, in, in the Ladakh uh, area, um, personally, has this fundamentally changed India's view of how to handle China? For example, there used to be a separation between the border issues and Pakistan on the one hand and the Indian Ocean issues on the other. Do you sense any gathering consensus within India that the Quad, or, or broader speaking, the relationship with the Quad countries can be used by India to ward off China uh, in the border issues and with respect to Pakistan? And Raja, if you want to respond, or Greg or Levina, feel free to as yeah. well. So, uh, John, I, I think, again, you know, don't look at Quad. I mean, I, I think we are doing more with the U.S. than anybody could have imagined four years ago, five years ago, uh, the kind of thing that is happening with, with the Americans and with the increasingly, hopefully, with the Australians as well. So the, what the Chinese have done in Ladakh is to remove any shred of ambiguity of China's fundamental threat to India's sovereignty and territorial integrity. So therefore, the fudging that we could do so long as, you know, we are sitting in the rake, we are for a multipolar world, we want to work with the Chinese for global good, uh, at the same time, US is our natural ally. So the kind of 20 years we've done this dance, but the dance has become impossible, given what China has done in Ladakh, not just the 20 people dying, but I think it's a it's the scale where they're saying, look, uh, they're not even likely this time to go back because the last four crises we could say after a period of time they'll withdraw all indications are they might not this time so i think the chinese threat has crystallized in the mind of the politicians in the public domain 
and and I think that has fundamentally changed, much as in East China seas. Sorry, in 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 east of China, uh, the Chinese are not being discriminating between different regions. They're asserting their power. And today, India cannot hide from that fundamental change in the Chinese approach. Abhijit or Gray yep. or Levine. Look, I think naval power has certain limits. Uh, you could uh, develop an alliance with the U.S., with, with Japan and Australia. But the fact of the matter is that would you be able to deter China in the Indian Ocean region? My sense is that in peacetime, it's very hard to have that kind of deterrence by a balancing coalition. Because the Chinese, in the, as far as the Indian Ocean is concerned, are actually using the sea lanes. They're entitled to use the sea lanes. They're growing their uh, maritime footprint in a way that is acceptable to most regional states. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that there is a great demand for Chinese service in, uh, uh, in, in the Bay of Bengal, among other countries in South Asia. How then is India expected to balance China through, uh, through naval cooperation with these countries? Uh, and again, as I said, that uh, uh, there's no harm in, 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 in developing greater strategic relations with some of, this some of these countries, doing greater naval exercises, having greater maritime domain awareness and all of that. But at the end of the day, what India needs is strategic capability. And I think when we talk of strategic relations with, with, with all of the three uh, quad partners, uh, one reason why we wanted to do that is we wanted to build that strategic capability. What we've seen in recent years is that we've actually not been able to build any capability as such. Yes, we've got the PHIs, which are, uh, you can call them strategic platforms, they're surveillance platforms. Again, surveillance platforms in a naval confrontation with China are going in, in peacetime uh, is going to uh, have limited use. What we need is underwater capability, submarines, you need uh, under, underwater assets. That sort of technology we are not getting from the US, we're not getting it from Japan. So again, there is limits to what the Quad has really been able to provide India. And my simple argument is that uh, that It, it appears to be a sensible idea for India to get together with squad partners. But in pure operational terms, the payoff isn't going to be as significant in the maritime domain if we get into this kind of relationship at this particular moment, at a time when we've not been able to balance internally, develop those internal sinews, the muscle to be able to combat China in the maritime domain. So, there's, so, so I'm arguing that there are limits to what uh, naval cooperation and naval alliance building can achieve in the Indian Ocean for India. Since we are at near zero, uh, anything we do is an advance. So I think the, the problem is not, are we going to stop the Chinese from coming into the Indian Ocean? They're in the Atlantic Ocean, they're in the Arctic, they're in the Pacific, they're everywhere. As a, as a great trading nation, they're everywhere. The question is, what does India do? Uh, you know, does India work with other partners to compensate for some of the weaknesses? Because if you wait India to become developed, to the same level as China, that's going to take us a long time. So we're not going to sit on our hands doing nothing till then. So my sense is, look, uh, Chinese uh, will come to the Indian Ocean. The question is, can we do more on maritime awareness? Can we help each other in developing each other's islands? Uh, can we do more coordination? Can we develop more interoperability? Uh, and can we develop partnerships with third countries, including Indonesia, Vietnam, and other countries? So I would think, especially in the Eastern Indian Ocean, what India and Australia can do together, there is a lot. We just begun that conversation. And this is uh, nothing to do with deterring the Chinese. We need to do 
for our own security more things because chinese are going to be around in ever larger scale and intensity of the presence uh, in this part of the world john could i um jump in there as well and i think in in part of your question you talked about the linkage between the maritime space and the border issues and um i i think when i i i'm happy for raja and averages particularly to correct me um but when i look at this current border crisis it it seems to me that in the past you've had i think about four border crises in the last 6 or 7 years uh increasing in intensity and increasing well the last one it it demonstrated that india wouldn't back down and that you that india has been in fact um building up its capabilities to defend the border since then and uh whilst there's a lot of naval gazing within india about whether this provoked china into doing what it's doing now um i think to me what it shows is that uh what you were saying before raja that it's it's not what india is doing india is is simply defending its existing border it's not the one changing the status quo and um uh, the previous practices of trying to smooth over relations don't really work that they simply smooth things over till the next time till the next time that they're able to do a bit more salami slicing and move the border even even further in their direction um so i'm i i see that that reticence to link both the, the land to the sea i think that that's actually a mistake and it has been a mistake that i can see that perhaps it's now um might be corrected soon in that i think you are actually um undermining other points of leverage that you can use in your relationship with china if you keep on uh separating the land and the sea there are other ways you can india can build its leverage over china and i think you're right to say it's not just about the quad it's about the relationships with each individual quad country um but the quad itself is a means of building that leverage it's a something in your back pocket where you can say well if you keep going the way you're going um we have options too and we can counter and deter you in different ways you've seen that happen in the digital domain uh, that uh, everyone else is talking about decoupling after rcep uh, india is beginning to push back on the digital side because i think there is a horizontal escalation where chinese exposure in india has been so large that india is looking for those avenues so i think that's why i said don't focus on the quad as the principal lens to analyze this or malabar look at india's larger strategy of how it is trying to find leverages of different kind with the with the chinese so the partnerships with us japan and australia one part of it and malabar is the least sorry the quad is the least important of those because there are four meetings of 45 minutes each with the banal individual statements so it is what we do in security wise with each of them uh, so so i would say india's look at full spectrum of options because as i said the chinese leverage with very little option and the linkage uh, all abhijit's former colleagues in the navy all the admirals uh, keep writing about how important it is to uh, work on the push malacca states i don't know if it can be done so, so i i think it's question of resources resource allocation issues but otherwise uh, these two can be followed separately as well so so john can i um, can i come in there briefly of course yeah so raja uh, you know i profoundly appreciate the deeply realist sense that you bring to these issues and it's one that uh, makes my heart sing with joy but um 
I would just add almost a footnote, really. You're right to say don't obsess about the Quad or about Malabar, but they are not only uh, significant in themselves and they are not only significant in diplomatic signalling, they are also very significant in political signalling to our own publics. Now, I was joking before about how fate has prevented Australian prime ministers from spending the time in India that they should. But there is a tremendous boom in India, in Australia. You know, it's our largest source of migrants most years. Everybody loves uh, Indian movies and so on. But uh, alerting the Australian public to the significance of the strategic relationship, which is an important part of sustaining the strategic relationship, does depend a bit on some big uh, symbols. And uh, the Quad and Malabar, uh, I agree with everything you say about them, but nonetheless, they have an additional value, which is that they are a political statement of intent. Now, I also agree profoundly with you that a political statement of intent not backed by concrete action is, you know, what did Orwell call it, just pure wind. But nonetheless, I think there's, an, there's another value in both Malabar and the Quad, and they would give uh, a very good strategic hook for Australian prime ministers and defence ministers to talk to the Australian public about the India relationship. I'll let you... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Roger, please. Look, I think we need that big symbolic stuff. But if you look at uh, from 2015, I mean, I think uh, when Modi government got into its stride, uh, in 2015, it invited Japan to become part of the Malabar exercises. And since then, there's been a debate of how do we and when do we get Australia in. But if you see a series of steps, India has revived the Quad in 2017. Uh, it is doing more on the bilateral front. So I, I think, yes, uh, we can have a, we need to have something big that galvanizes the public attention. And I think the moment is right. So that's why, I, I mean, I agree with you, I and mean, I fully support the inclusion of uh, uh, you know, Australia and the Malabar, and even more important, uh, can we do something with the Andaman Islands and the Cocos Islands? Uh, can we be seen as working together, not merely one exercise in two years or something like that, but something uh, our navies, uh, our rest of the governments are working together to develop capabilities jointly uh, in the Eastern Indian Ocean? I, I think before we move on from the court, I just want to... to, to um go to Levina for one last comment, because there's a conspiracy of Australians on this panel, Levina, myself and Greg. And the Australians would know that we in the government have invested so much in the Quad as a platform of bringing India in, that um, even if, uh, Raja, what you said was accepted, um, it, from, from a bureaucratic and policy formation point of view, Australia will proceed with the Quad as not the only, but as a primary platform. Now, bearing that in mind and bearing uh, the comments made by Abhijit, Levina, I know you recently released a paper uh, through the Lowe Institute about what the Quad can do, but not just, a simply, not just simply a laundry list of what the Quad can do, but what the Quad can do that might actually not just be meaningful, but bring uh, India's interests into play. Um, Perhaps you could just give us a very quick summary of, of some of those um, some some of those elements. Well, I think some of the the kind of more military aspects, the military cooperation aspects, we've really already covered. So I, I agree with you, 
Raja, um, that we shouldn't obsess about military exercises and entering Malabar. Um, but I don't think that we need to be um, too reticent about it either, that you could do it in a way that maybe is not um, so uh, provocative. You could start with the more public goods type activities, humanitarian assistance, uh, disaster relief, anti-piracy, all of those things. You could do it in the Indian Ocean, not in the South China Sea. Um, all of those things will be a nod to those in India that would be worried about um, too much uh, provocation. Um, and we can see there's some really good things happening in, in terms of the logistics agreement between Australia and India um, and the possibilities for the Andaman and Nicobar, but also Australia's Cocos Islands. All of those things are really important. Um, more information sharing, maritime surveillance, awareness, um, but I think, um, you know, when we, we were saying earlier that we shouldn't focus purely on uh, military aspects, it's really, as a platform, it's a very useful platform for things like combating the BRI. So the worst aspects of the BRI, which India is, um, a, a, as you said, a leader in, in drawing out those terrible aspects of the BRI. Um, and I don't see why the Quad as a grouping couldn't put together a critical infrastructure fund and focus it on countries in the Bay of Bengal, in the South Pacific, um, those small island nations that are the most vulnerable um, to this type of debt trap diplomacy and provide them with an alternative that's based on some kind of best practice. And we can also see, I, I did notice that in the Australia-India meeting that just happened, um, they are really looking at things like cooperation on technology, um, uh, things like Huawei 5G, um, but also critical infrastructure and setting combined coordinated rules as to how to prevent uh, critical infrastructure from being subverted in some way. So I, I'm just thinking of there are so many other uh, different ways in which the, the four countries can coordinate and make consistent policies that will actually multiply um, the effects of those policies. You didn't mention mining. It's actually, you know, India hopefully is opening up its mining sector to yes. foreign investment. Oh, uh, mine. You know, rare earths, for example, I mean, we tried to do something with the Japanese during the Congress rule. It didn't work out. I hope Australia's, you know, in fact, one of the agreements that was signed was on critical materials. So I hope there are a lot of things we can do. But I think India is a slow boat, right? I mean, so now I think you've got to accept that. And within the kind of speeds we can manage, hopefully we can keep doing more things together so that our bonds become strong and we become an important, uh, you know, structure here of bilateral, then trilateral with other countries and plurilateral with Americans. So I would say just let's be ambitious and keep doing things uh, rather than just saying the focus. That's all I was saying. I mean, not, but I'm a great champion of the Quad, great champion of the Malabar, but uh, I'm saying, Let's keep building bricks which can fit into the architecture of all kinds. Okay, we only have about five minutes. So let me move to uh, domestic politics in India and the United States because a lot of questions from the, uh, those registered um, concern this. Peter Ward, Bria Pawar and others ask, um, has public opinion in India changed or hardened towards China to the extent that it is impossible uh, for this government or the next one to, to really resist the direction of, um, of a countering approach 
to China? Or are we still in a situation of what it was five years ago where there may be um, two steps forward, two steps back when it comes to the issue of how, to, of, of, of how the government fundamentally views China? What does domestic politics in India tell us? Uh, Abhijit or, or Raja? I mean, I've been talking too much. I mean, let Abhijit no. say something. Look, my sense on, uh, on this question is that after the Galwan incident, there, there is this feeling within the Indian strategic establishment that a red line has been crossed. And this has really been a tipping point. And from here, there will be a more, uh, more muscular policy uh, towards, towards China. I think uh, what, what, what we're seeing in India is the sort of uh, nationalism, the whole feeling of nationalism was also uh, a dislike of China that, uh, that I, I, I don't remember having seen in many years. And I think it's gonna be very hard for the Indian government to now walk back from that position that we've now taken about greater engagement with our partners to say that, well, now it's to the strategic autonomy, we, we are going to do the whole uh, Wuhan, we are going to have the Wuhan spirit with, with China and, and all of that. So I think all of that is now history. We've, we've entered a phase in which this is going to be a more adversarial relationship with China. And the relationship with China has all, always been about some bits of cooperation and some bits of competition. But now you can clearly feel that this will now be more about uh, conflict and uh, and competition. And I think there, uh, our relationships with our partners are going to be critical. I would just uh, say that uh, in terms of our, the policies that we have been adopting uh, in the region, um, uh, we need, we definitely need a more forward leaning approach. Even if we don't go on to invite Australia to join the Malabar, be part of a military quad, there is definitely a need for us to engage with ASEAN countries do more in the ASEAN regions. Look, ultimately, if we have to join the Quad and subscribe to that model of the Indo-Pacific that Australia, Japan, and the US subscribe to, we've got to be willing to do more in the Pacific and not just limit ourselves to the Indian Ocean. So one part of this discussion is actually about getting India involved in, some, in the strategic dynamic of the Pacific, which is what Australia's focus also for a long time has been to draw India away, not just from the, not, not to focus, not just on the Indian Ocean, but also of the affairs of, of, of the Pacific. And I think that in the future, uh, with this, with the Modi government, uh, uh, particularly, there is every chance that we will develop a more, 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 more forward leaning, more muscular approach. Uh, the, my only fear is that uh, we're down this path wherein um, somehow managing our, our, this adversarial relationship with China might become more difficult in the future. So I think we've got to keep a few doors and windows open for us to uh, initiate a dialogue with, uh, with, with China and send the right signals to, uh, to China. At this moment, we are negotiating a truce with them on the Ladakh border. Um, my fear is that we might end up uh, doing something or, or engaging in some, some action that China might deem as provocative and that might might have an impact on these negotiations that we are having. Uh, Raja, at the before, same time, yeah, I, I think uh, you know. Look, oh, I sorry, Abhijit, I didn't mean. Yes. Yeah, sorry. You want me to stop or? Uh, look, no, no, no. Sorry, Raja. Continue. And I was going to yeah. ask you, Raja, um, the political ideology, given what's happened with China in the last few months, does the authoritarian element of China now figure more largely in Indian thinking, or what I'm really asking is the democratic element in Indian foreign policy, is that more likely to become 
a factor or will India still remain very reluctant to uh, operationalize the democratic nature of its foreign policy? Look, I mean, I don't think, you know, India's looking at, I think what India finds hard with China is, look, there is no recourse, like in all the other democracies, there are different groups, different agencies with whom you can engage with, even when you have differences with the government, uh, to find a more balanced approach, compensate for problem in one area with cooperation in the other. But I think under Xi Jinping, China has really shut down uh, all possible avenues for that kind of an engagement. They're hard on the economic side, they're hard on the political side. And I think by doing on the military side, they've really uh, left us with no option. So I, I don't see the problem of anybody walking back, uh, even whether nationalism subsides or not, that if they don't vacate the territory, uh, if they continue to push, uh, I think India's choices are made. But there is one factor which all of us, from the United States, Japan, Australia, or India, China's size and weight will continue to compel to leave channels open for engagement. I think that's fair. I mean, no one is saying, are we going to just walk away from China? And I think if you look at the four of us, it's India that has actually walked away more on the economic front. The RCEP decision, the digital decisions now, uh, India is far more committed today. And I think this is going to be much harder to reverse. That we are going to decouple because the coupling with China has been so devastating for Indian industry, Indian jobs. I think that's a much deeper argument than the arguments about strategic autonomy uh, or that Chinese will get upset uh, if we throw their companies out. So I think we're already down the path. All right, Greg, I'm going to end on Australian and uh, American domestic politics or domestic policy. Um, even as recently as December uh, uh, last year, uh, when I was in New Delhi, a lot of Indians said to me, all right, we like where Australian foreign policy is, but wait till the Labor government gets in power. It, India will no longer be as important as, 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 as it currently is to, to Canberra. So the first question I had was, um, is that a fair or plausible assessment of a potential Labor government in Australia? And the second question, of course, is a Biden uh, presidency, does a lot change or, or, or is there not much change at all from the United States point of view uh, when it comes to India? Well, John, uh, look, I think uh, Raja uh, produced a, a, a very useful formulation when he said China has, in a sense, solved the problem for us. China has compelled our attitudes. China has compelled our actions. So um, I think the Labor Party in opposition in Australia has been very responsible and bipartisan on key uh, strategic settings. I've attended a lot of India dialogues in New Delhi with Penny Wong and um, Chris Bowen and so on, the leading Labor Party figures. But nonetheless, you're right to be sceptical about every new government. You know, the last time Labor came into power, uh, they had promised a very strong performance on defence. And the, the old Howard government said to me, surely you're not going to give them a free pass on the basis of their promises. And I said, well, you've got to take them at their word. And then they got into office and immediately scaled defence spending back to its lowest level as a percentage of GDP since, 19, since the 1930s, since the you know, quasi-Australian isolationist era of the 1930s. So Labor has to prove itself. One reason that I'm so keen to get symbolic things going, big structures going, annual commitments going, Malabar, quads, all the rest of it, is it will be easier for a new and timorous Labor government 
to inherit structures which it can uh, sort of animate and um, inhabit. Uh, our bureaucracy still has a slight anti-Indian bias. It's much less than it used to be, but it's still there. And so many careers have been invested in China, in the bureaucracy and in business. I mean, our treatment of the Adani mine in Queensland was a kind of shocking, hideous water torture that we subjected this uh, benign, benevolent, friendly Indian investor to. So, so it is right to say Labor would have to perform on India. So far, they say all the right things. And then just a word on Biden. Now, um, Radha and I participated in a wonderful panel at the Jaipur Writers' Festival in which a New York Times guy tried very hard to get us both to engage in the American Civil War and denounced Trump as the work of the devil. And Raja made the point that from India's perspective, Trump hadn't been a bad president. The same is true in Australia. From Australia's perspective, Trump hasn't been a bad president. Increased defence cooperation, increased intelligence sharing activities, hasn't levied any tariffs on us, um, and he's increased his own defence expenditure and so on. Biden, Trump in a second term is completely unpredictable. Trump is, all the bad things that are said about Trump personally are true. Uh, the John Bolton book is is a really, uh, you know, frightening uh, kind of R-rated pornographic look at uh, the inside of American strategic decision making. Trump in a second term is entirely unpredictable. He might even cut a deal with China. Who knows? But Biden at this stage is also very unpredictable. Biden was especially wimpish, even by the standards of the extremely wimpish Obama White House. Uh, Biden had Obama's disease in thinking that his personal diplomacy could change things. You know, he famously spent a few days with Xi Jinping as vice president uh, and thought that this had changed Xi Jinping, whereas Xi may have sold Biden a bill of goods. Biden didn't sell Xi anything. And the final reflection is that within the Biden foreign policy team, there is a serious war between relative hawks and sort of kumbaya doves. Now, the bipartisan critique of China is very strong in the US at the moment. But China, like North Korea, has a few good moves that it knows work very well with the Americans. Sell the president a, a, a media opportunity declaring that you're going to solve climate change. Sell him a little bit of progress on, um, a little bit of completely fraudulent progress on North Korea. And in exchange, get him to lay off on all the strategic issues, stop doing freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, and so on. So all all nations, their future is uncertain. I think it's no better than an even money bet that Biden would pursue hard-headed strategic realism uh, with China. Well, Greg, with forthright comments like that, you can see why there was a Greg Sheridan project with him. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've run out of time. It's been a, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Uh, I really want to thank uh, Abhijit, Raja, uh, Greg, um, and Lavina for, for taking part. I want to thank all of um, the people who've been online listening to this conversation. I also want to thank some of my colleagues at the United States Study Centre who uh, make my life easy. I just have to turn up and, and, and speak to four other people. Uh, it doesn't just happen. So Janine, Mari, uh, Taylor, Zoe and Jared, thank you very much. Uh, the next United States Studies Centre webinar is on Tuesday the 4th of August next week. 
It's part of our Election Watch 2020 series, uh, Will Democrats Take the Senate and the White House? A recording of today's session uh, will be available on the USSC website. Uh, thank you very much, all of you who have logged on. Uh, thank you and good afternoon.